Well, a very good morning to you. If you don't know me, my name's Richard. I'm one of the clergy here. I'm married to Nicola, who's the vicar here. And it's a delight to be with you. Um, my last audience was a captive audience. Uh, as John said, I'm just back from South Sudan. And I got to do last Sunday two talks in a prison, as well as the seven o'clock service at the cathedral in Juba. As I went from preaching to a crowded uh, cathedral to uh, some young men or young boys who are in prison and then to the women's prison and the uh, toddlers running around their feet um, so they were they were rather more captive than you are the glass doors are there if you need to leave at any point uh, please make their fire exits left and right um, but they were an extraordinary group of people to talk to I, I probably in all the different traveling I've done around the world have have probably not encountered people with less reason to have hope or joy than the women who were in that prison, 30% of whom may just have been on remand, not had trial yet, they may even have been innocent, um, stuck in really extreme conditions where, according to one report, they may not have had water every day even, uh, hot, hot weather, some of them with their, their babies running around their feet. And yet, at the beginning of the service, of which there were plenty of people there, uh, everyone who got up to speak, including many of the inmates, began with the word, hallelujah, and the response from everyone was, amen. And then the worship began, which was, again, led by the inmates. And there were three large African drums on the ground, and boom, 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 was, was kicking off. And then suddenly there would be a guttural cry from a couple of the people, a bit like a cantor at a cathedral, but coming from a really deep place, this sort of, ah, sort of cry that came out. And the worship would carry on. And what struck me about it was it, it was deliberately forward-looking mentality. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking backwards and trying to process pain and difficulties and things that have gone on in my past. They would have had bucket loads of that to do. But for whatever reason, God inspired reason, they found their liberty in projecting forward into a hope to come. Hallelujah! Amen! <laughs> was the cry that came back. And suddenly, with the drums beating, the cry coming out, the enthusiasm, the testimonies they were offering... There was freedom. And that's what we're going to be looking at from this passage in uh, 2 Corinthians as well. So let, let's pray as we approach the passage. And if you want to follow it, it's on page 1161 in the Church Bibles. Heavenly Father, we thank you that with you there is always hope. And in fact, there can be great confidence as well. And we pray that today that you install in us all a great sense of hope in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So this letter to 2 Corinthians that we began to look at last week with Nicola, and we'll finish off this little section next week again with Nicola preaching, is Paul talking to a church that he loves to bits. If you know the story of the Corinthians, he was there for three years. Uh, he had his own business while he was there. He was a, a tent maker, and that's key in our passage today, that he was a tent maker when he was with them, working with leather uh, to produce goods. And it was a city that was known for its vice. Um, I, I don't know if you know the, the geography of that bit of Greece, but it's, it's an area where you can walk across from one sea to another if you go through Corinth. So rather than going all the perilous way around the Greek islands, um, you basically not quite pick up your boat, but you pick up the contents of your boat and carry it through Corinth to the other side of Greece. And, uh, and you're out the other side. And of course, that meant that Corinth had all the vices of a sailor's port. 
everything that you could imagine going on, a hodgepodge of people, prostitution, left, right, and center. There were uh, every nationality there. It was one of those melting pot places and, and an intellectual place as well, an interesting place to be. And the people in Corinth were particularly impressed by visitors who look good, you know, like, like John there, you know, people who stand up enthusiastic and look good. And they were like, yes, we like that. But St. Paul, who's very famous to us, was not famous for that at all. In fact, he was known probably for a stutter, for being unimpressive in person. His, his original name, Saul, um, had been changed to Paul. And it's just the sense of being quite small that comes through that. It's a wordplay in English, but also in, in the Greek. He was a sort of small stature person, maybe even hunched over. So for all the miracles associated with Paul, for all his impressive writing, in person, he wasn't that big a deal. And he preferred the sort of TV evangelists of their day who would come along, look good, look impressive, and tell them that they could have a life worth living now, <laughs> that they could have it on a plate while they wait. They weren't so impressed by what Paul had to say for himself. And yet Paul says, look, back in chapter one, he says this, look, we have been under despair of life for itself. We were under great pressure beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, we sometimes felt the sentence of death, but this happens that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We knew what it was like to be squashed down, said Paul, in our desire to share the gospel of Jesus with you, to preach Christ crucified to you. We knew what it was like to be squashed to the point where we thought life was going itself. Many of the people in South Sudan that I'd uh, been working with know what it was like. They know what it's like to be on the edge of life. They know what it's like to know that you might not get through the year to come. Many of the women in the prison that I was preaching to presumably are at least as much victims of their life and circumstances, they were guilty for anything. People know what it's like to be in an inch of their life all around the world. And, and Paul says here, look, actually that's not just for people in extreme situations. That's actually true for all of us. Because all we get to live in now is what he describes as an earthly tent. What the leather maker, what the tent maker describes as an earthly tent. And I, I don't know about how you see your earthly tent, which he means your, your body. Um, for most of us, we, we see it as a prized possession, don't we? You know, we have little phrases, don't we? As long as I've got my health, <laughs> I'm okay. But the Christian gospel says you're not going to always have your health, actually. That's just not something you can hold on to forever. Because you're just living in an earthly tent. But the Christian gospel doesn't see that as actually fundamentally terrible news. It says that it's hard. It talks about wasting away. It says it's not necessarily easy that the tent has leaks, that the tent can get blown over in a gale. Some of us were at New Wine a few years ago. We had to cancel it because we were living in tents. And there was a gale across the east of England. Tents are perilous things to live in, even in the summer in Britain, maybe especially in the summer in Britain. They're not going to last forever. And Paul says, but take heart. Look, here, verse 1 of chapter 5. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. You know, friends, often we preach about this passage when it's a bit too late. 
You know, I might take this as a, a passage at a funeral and try and explain to people who are already deceased <laughs> that they're moving from a tent to a building. The key time to get this in our head is now. We have a building to look forward to. Jesus says to St. Thomas, when he says, where are you going? He says, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would not tell you. I go to prepare a room for you. We have a building, an eternal house to clothe ourselves in. And so now Paul says, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Everything in our culture says, be like the Buper advert. I'm told that you can't sell a woman a beauty product without using a model who's 20 years younger than the target audience. <laughs> you know, this will take two decades off your life is the subliminal message. But it's not true, is it? It's a lie. It's disappearing. This tent is going. And sometimes it feels like it's going faster than we want. And sometimes it's just, it's hard. Yeah? And so we groan. Uh, but Paul says, look, if you orientate yourself forwards, if you're not just trying to have a life worth living now, but you are... Um, preparing yourself also to have the pie in the sky when you die. <laughs> You'll remember that that is a beautiful thing to look forward to. Look what he says. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. While we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this purpose is God. God is making us ready for an eternity with him where we're in something so solid that this life will look like it was just the shadowlands. It's not that eternity in Christian gospel is a shadowland. It's not that eternity is ephemeral and we're not quite sure if it's real or not. It's this life is the shadowlands. This life in C.S. Lewis, this is just the introduction of the great book. Chapter one begins in the life to come. And the spirit who has been given to us guarantees what's to come. And so this is where it gets sort of interesting in Paul's thought, and it is worth trying to get your head around. Because if you've already received the Holy Spirit, which I trust you have, you can examine yourself and go, yes, I've got the Holy Spirit. Then already that eternal building is sort of being built for you. And you may find that you have this experience of not quite fitting in in this world. Ever had that experience? I don't quite know where I'm from. I'm not quite sure where I'm rooted. Maybe you grew up here, but just, I'm not quite sure where I come. And that's because you already have an identity in a new home in heaven. You've got a foot in that camp as well as a foot in this camp. And if it's sort of going the right way, the foot in this camp over here feels more real sometimes than this one here. And that's why when you're faced by extreme suffering, even suffering for the gospel like Paul had, you can go, oh, it's all right, because I'm actually, my identity's rooted here. And when you're holding on to this life here, you sort of feel there's this pull over here. It's not quite complete anymore. See, before you responded to the gospel, you were sort of fine here. You know, it was about the car. It was about the house. It was about the mortgage. It was about the, maybe the marriage. It was about the children. It was about all these different things that we hold on to. And we can't hold on to them like my precious, like they're, they're really important to us. 
But when you responded to the gospel, you let go of all these things that you once held dear. And you said, however good they are, I'm actually trusting you with them, Lord Jesus. You can be Lord of my life. And I'm putting my eggs all in your camp. And then we have this tussle through life where we're like, but I want to hold on to these. I'm worried about these. I I trust. And Paul says, eventually you're going to get to the point where you can't hold on to anything anymore. This tent's gone. And now you get to stand here safe with him, knowing that he is completely Lord after all. And you don't have to worry about it anymore. Isn't that something to look forward to? Not having to worry about these things anymore because you fully trust him. And so he says, look, we're confident, confident, in our word, we're confident, always confident. And we know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. When we're in this tussle place, we haven't got it all sorted yet. So we're living by faith, not by sight. We're, we're confident, he says again. And I would prefer, do you see these words? I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in a body or away from it. Because, and here's his final punchline of this passage for today, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us will receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Now what's that about? I say, look, be confident. One day you're going to be fully rooted here with Jesus. And how have you got to be fully rooted here with Jesus? Well, the answer we know through the whole letter and through Paul's theology is by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, death on the cross. That's why he says we preach Christ crucified through the cross. That's how you know you're going to get this resurrected body. That's the hope you've got, is that Jesus died, so you died with him, and you've been raised with him. That is your hope, your Christian hope. But when you get there, and you fix your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, you're going to be coming towards a chair. And this chair resembles the chair that they had in Corinth for the high magistrate to sit on. This chair is a judgment seat. And you will get to glory and you will come before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the words here, you will receive what is due to us, things done well in a body, whether good or bad. You've only got to this judgment seat of Christ, Christian, because of grace, through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the reason you're there. But when you get there, you will receive what's done in your body, good or bad. And what does that mean? Well, Paul's using this actually as an incentive more than as a stick, as a carrot more than a stick. And the most helpful way of remembering it is, do you remember the parable Jesus told where he says, look, here's some talents that I've given you to use. And he gave one person five, one person three, one person one. And the guy with one goes, hmm, haven't been given very much. (laughs) Blow this for a laugh. Buries it in the ground and doesn't do anything with it so that he can give back the one talent at the end. Going, hmm. And... The master comes and says, well, why didn't you at least put it in a bank so I got some interest? There's interest even in the UK banks now. That's coming back, isn't it? At least put it in a bank so you get some interest. And uh, that one ends up having the one talent taken away from them by Jesus. 
on Judgment Day because he did nothing with it. But the one who had three and the one who had five, and there are different tellings of the story through the gospel, Jesus obviously told it a few times. They used it well. And so Jesus doubles their rewards in, if you like, heaven. And so one day, dear brothers and sisters, you will come before the seat of Jesus Christ, dressed in your glorious heavenly body, which is like a brick building, not like a tent. You're not in any danger of your eternal spiritual life at this point. You're utterly safe because of Jesus. You're utterly safe because he paid the price for you on the cross. That price has been totally paid at that point. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to stand there whatsoever. But at this point, he will say, and what did you do? Tony, Margaret, Mark, John, Jeff, what did you do with the talents that I gave you? How did you use them? And then he will dish out his rewards to those who've used them well. And I can't pretend that I really understand what that would look like. I've not been there. But wouldn't you love to see his smile, smiling back at you going, yeah, well done, well done. And we know it's a mixed report, don't we? I mean, if we judge ourselves, it's a mixed report. But remember, he's a good, good father. And he's looking for reasons to praise you, not to condemn you. He's like, come closer. Let me tell you how much it pleased me when you went and visited that person. Let me tell you how much it blessed me when you did that thing for your church brethren. When you cared for the poor, let me tell you how much that pleased you. When you had faith with your finances, let me tell me how much that pleased me. When you became more like my son, Jesus, the father whispering to you, how much that pleased me. And he's looking for ways to reward you. And friends, this will be the defining moment of your entire existence. <laughs> this is much more important than the day the bank says your house is completely your own. This surpasses any public examination you or your children or grandchildren may ever do in their lives. This surpasses any walking down the aisle moment, whether in a box or not. <laughs> This is the defining moment of your existence after the day when you said, please take my sins on you. Please let me into your heaven. And you turn in faith for salvation. This is the day when Jesus Christ looks at you and goes, well done. And that's a day worth living for. It's a day worth engineering back into your tomorrow. And working out what you might want to do tomorrow, so that day in the future is as glorious as it almost certainly will have been for Paul. Friends around the world are church members like the ones in South Sudan that I began with talking about. Many of whom holding on to Jesus Christ through perilous situations. And I'm told that the analogy about the fox in the, uh, the, the frog in the water that warms up isn't true, like a frog would actually jump up out of the water, <laughs> you know, the boiling water analogy. 
Um, but we live, in a, we live in a culture where it's not easy to keep going faithfully with that vision of the judgment seat of Christ in mind. So I get it. If you were faced with a Kalashnikov in your face right now, you might find it easier to make a decision for Christ than in the tiny little incremental decisions that you'll make over the next month as to whether you're for him or against him. In the crisis, sometimes it's easier to go yes than in the seduction. My prayer for you and for me and for all of us here is that when we get to eternity, we'll feel all right about standing next to the martyrs because on a daily basis, we died our own death to this tent-like life and fixed our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that he's got a house for us in heaven and our little decisions mean that he's thrilled to see us when he gives out gifts in heaven. May God bless his word to us today. Amen. And there's a, a few of the Soma magazines at the back if you want to pick one up. Thank you so much for your support as a church for Soma. makes an enormous difference to uh, our tiny little mission agency. So please do have a look at this if you'd like to. Amen.